Hey, 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 this is The Film File, episode 95. Stand by for action. Five, four, three, two, one. Film File is go. So, hello and welcome after that bombastic opener. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And this is the film show for film geeks and by film geeks. Andy, have you been? It's uh, uh, we're a little late recording this um, than we usually do because, well, I had a birthday. But enough about me. On to How you. How dare you? How dare you have a birthday, sir? Yes, uh, we know we normally record on the Sundays and then do some touch-ups on the Tuesday before I do my final edit of it. But we're actually recording it all on the Tuesday now, which leaves me a bit pressed for time for getting the edit out. So uh, tomorrow night's going to be spent sat in front of the computer, slaving away, trimming all the ums and the erms and the, the diversions that we have. Because people who've been paying attention to the YouTube channel will have noticed that I've started uploading some more videos of the deep dives. Yes, I was going to mention that. They're the unedited ones. So you get some of the diversions and some of the times that Lee strays off topic, including when I was re-watching them, there was the moment it's usually the moments in between in the middle of the show where we talk about how you can get in touch with us etc that's when you go off on tangents <laughs> and there's the one where you went off on a tangent about how much you hate the babadook <laughs> and it had oh yeah i really hate the way. babadook and i'm so glad that we had that on video because it was fantastic <laughs> how you you just pause for about 5 seconds and go oh i hate that film and then start going into why you hate the film and i, that's I really what we get do on. just like the babadook it's not that it's it's not that it's a bad movie i just it's the kid it's the kid. It's the kid. It's, it's the kid I absolutely detest. I, I would have fed him to the Babadook uh, by that. I, and it's also that it's that thing that I've, I've talked about this many times on the show. It's when certain directors don't make horror films, they make psychological thrillers. No, it's a horror film. It just it just be proud of the fact you've made a horror film. Don't try and... a strange sense of deja vu right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shall we tell him just move on? You just I, opened I just... an old <laughs> Babadook wound. <laughs> but it's, um, for those who haven't checked out the video channel over on YouTube, the same way that the podcast expands upon the radio show, the radio show is an hour, never more than an hour. The podcast is as long as we need it to be. <laughs> but there's bits that are cut out that don't make it to the podcast that if I want to, I'll pop them back in for the video thing so that people can get an extra treat. Not You're not just revisiting the standard deep dive because you've already heard it. You get to get a bit of extra nuggets of information, including some insight into our warped minds at times. Speaking of warped minds, I was, okay. properly, warped, I was properly warped out on Halloween. Sat here in front of the computer, Halloween evening, tapping away yeah. on me movie talk on Sunday like I normally do. Uh, if you've not checked out movie talk on Sunday, hashtag Entos on Twitter. Get searching for it. Look at all the old questions. See what kind of thing we discuss. Uh, but it was dark because the nights are gr- drawing in and it was Halloween. And I'm sat and you've seen where that, where my computer is, but the people yeah. at home probably don't. But my computer is literally next to my bay doors at my kitchen. So I've got glass doors in front of me, one of them with a net half over it, one of them um, completely open. And as I'm sat here, something tapped against the window and it looked like a red light had hit it as well. I was like, what on earth was that? And then it taps again. And it's behind the net curtain, so I can't quite see it. So I'm like, what's going on? And I've got all my lights off because I tend to sit in my kitchen in the dark. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it goes in front of the door that hasn't got a curtain in front of it. And it's a solitary red balloon drifts into view, drops what? down to the floor. Come on. And then the wind, the wind snags it and it drifts off into the garden and the darkness of the garden. And I was like, 
What on earth? So I got up, opened the door to look for it in the garden. It's gone. That was it. Door closed, locked, net curtain over. I was like, I'm not going anywhere out there. If there's a clown waiting <laughs> for me, I, I, I'm not doing it. I, so at which know, point I, then, Andy, did you poop yourself? Uh, all the way through it. It was a long, <laughs> extended poop. You know, I mean, I've spoken to you about my fear of clowns. I'm one of these. Yeah, yeah. Weird I mean, most. Who... I think it's it's strange that most people, these uh, figures that are supposed to bring joy and laughter, we actually hate. They creep me out immensely. So you know, it even though it wasn't an over the top horror, I found a lot of. I was scared for most of the film because it's a clown, and so the very thought of some clown in my garden. It absolutely melted my brain. That was it. I was done for the night. Luckily, I had Doctor Who to back me up and um, cheer me up. Because uh, Do you remember that? There week. was that trend um, some years back. And I, I think it kind of... Oh, the, the, oh, the, clown, the clown attacks. Thing. Yeah. The clown attacks. People jumping out like and panicking people or standing there in car parks with a knife in the hands dressed as a clown. And I was basically, if I, if I saw one, I'd not only poo myself, but then I'd fling what poo had made at the clown. <laughs> and then run screaming like a girl, because that's how I would react. Wow. <laughs> I don't think that's ever been my fear. It's kind of an orchestrated fear that's that's become subsequently before with stuff like it. It wasn't ever a fear. I just never liked clowns. Yeah. But I've just not found them funny, let alone sort of dis- dislike them for anything else. I just never think they're amusing. Yeah. So I kind of block them out of my life. So, yeah, I had a birthday. And that's why we didn't record. And 21, eh? 21 again. Yeah. I mean, 21 more than ever. How many, how many years of experience at being 21 is that now? Oh, is it <laughs> So it was a nice day. It was a bit underwhelming. Not due to anybody's fault. Um, weekend hit and I was shattered. Went out with my bandmates, which have never done anything social with my bandmates, on the Saturday, which uh, my other half arranged. And then just had a kind of very easy, easy day on the Sunday, which was my actual birthday. Went out for, for breakfast and then went out for a huge Sunday lunch, which I was still digesting yesterday. It was that big a Sunday lunch. And uh, it's just a, a relaxing time and uh, um, all the nicer for it. I think we're going to do something again next weekend but yeah it's just nice to relax got some nice presents and some some nice surprises i have a a a gift guide something to watch uh something to wear uh, it used to be something to listen to but now with now with spotify or apple music that doesn't doesn't work something to uh something to read um and mm. that's kind of my i'm happy as long as i get some of that off my yeah of my tick list then then that's it it's so much easier in this day time. and age as well that yeah I, i've always got amazon wish lists set up and i've got ones for myself just for as reminders of what things are once but then i've got one set up with varying degrees of like price ranges of presents and gifts that are once. Yeah. so much easier in this day and age to make sure that you get something that you're going to really love you're going to really appreciate so mine's packed with like books vinyls movies uh like collectible memorabilia Anything like that is what goes in there. So every every Christmas, it's just like, I know I'm going to get something that I can settle back with. Last year, I got Adamant's autobiography. Love okay. it. Absolutely love it. You know how much I'm a huge fan yeah, of Adamant. Yeah. Can't wait to see him again next year. Back in the day, you used to have to take a gamble with buying presents for a friend for, for the yes. birthday. A, you didn't yeah. know if anyone else had bought it. And B, you didn't know if he already had it. And then you've got the whole, oh, oh my, if he opens this up and he doesn't like it. Uh, what what's going to happen? But now, absolutely, we live in a world where it makes it so much easier to make sure that no one's going to be disappointed. You can just so, check, I, and, and it's so easy. You know, you don't have to put a list together. Just go on on my Amazon wish list, and it's all there. I got yeah. a Funko Pop, which would be be pleased. Andy, I've entered in a big world with a Funko Pop. I had an Alice <laughs> Cooper one, a rare one. Oh, nice! I had the not so rare one, and I got now have in my possession the rare one as well. 
Nice. So yeah, it was good time was had. It was it was a, a, a nice weekend. And I think we're going to do a little bit more uh, this next weekend. But before all of that, what's on the show this week? Well, Andy and I have some reviews for you. We'll be talking about Eternals, uh, Finch. We've both seen both of those films, so that's going to be a rarity. And then I've also got Harder They Fall. We are doing this week's deep dive. And I think I didn't get the memo because I thought we were doing a deep dive into just superhero movies that we didn't like. But then you told me we're doing a deep dive into Ghost Rider. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have our neat things. And of course, before anything else, Andy has been delving into the cesspit of news to bring you, well, the news. So, Andy, should we start with box office figures? Because all eyes are on how well Eternals has done, which we're going to be re- talking about later. But there has been quite a bit of word of mouth. And we mentioned something about this last week. Well, not necessarily word of mouth, but kind of pre-opening poor reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. And I don't particularly care for Rotten Tomatoes. But by people who've probably not seen the film, were sort of slating it before it came out. And I think it's to do with a diverse cast. And I think it's to do with some content that is a a gay kiss. And I think there's been an element of that hitting into the the poor reviews, because surely when the film only opened, it only had press reviews to a degree. Now, I know Rotten Tomatoes does the press reviews, but there seem to be a lot of reviews where "Mm, I don't think people have seen this movie. But how did that affect box office? Well, yeah, you're right in the fact that the reviews have been negative. It's at 47% on Rotten Tomatoes, which means that only 40, 47% of critics actually thought it was a three out of five or better film. Some of them, okay. it might have just missed the mark. It might have been a five out of 10. So it's just under. But it is the lowest scoring Marvel film. MCU film, I'll be specific yeah. there. The reason why we're talking about Ghost Rider later is that's a low scoring Marvel film. It's the lowest scoring MCU film to date. A lot of the reviews, yes, there's some genuine reviews in there where it's just people didn't resonate with the characters, people didn't connect with it, there wasn't something to appeal. But I've dug through quite a few reviews and there's definitely, well, to say that some of them wrote for the right-wing press in America would would hint at what their problems with this film would be. And maybe it's the diversity of the cast. Maybe it's the sexuality on display. Other people have, I've seen some critics who've moaned that it doesn't feel like a Marvel film. Yes, Feige said that they were going to step outside the comfort zones and break the tradition of the Marvel in this whole phase. They were going to try and be something different than the normal template. Everyone moans that Marvel has a formula. Now you're moaning that Marvel doesn't have a formula. What's going on? But interestingly, the audience score is currently running at 80% because word of mouth from the public generally online is, is that the film that's supposed to be bad? Because I actually quite enjoyed it. And I've been like talking to customers as they've been coming out of screens about it. And it seems that the majority of them, yeah, they're, they're loving what they're doing. I've seen kids coming out talking about the characters in the film and which one they want to be. Yeah, everyone's embracing it, except for the critics. Now, I get that a critic's job is to dissect a film. A critic's job is to analyze structure, etc. And we'll talk about it ourselves later. But yeah. I think a lot of them are forgetting that this is entertainment. It's, it's entertainment and art combined. And does it deserve 47%? No, it doesn't. So stop paying attention to Rotten Tomatoes. And if you are one of the people out there who's criticizing the film without having seen it, just because the critics have said 47%, if I look in your profile and I find that you've watched any of the Transformers film, I will track you down and I will beat you (laughs) to the ground because you're a hypocrite. Let's be honest. 
everyone at some point has said, oh, the critics have got this wrong. I really love this film. So stop paying attention to them. If you want to go and see something, go and see it. But don't criticise a film until you've seen it. Unless Paul Blart Cop 3 gets announced, in which case criticise the hell out of that thing. But anyway. <laughs> so how's it done box office then? So... It was poorly reviewed, so everyone expected, oh, it might hit it at the box office. And the predictions initially were a 75 to 80 million at the US box office over the weekend. And it finished on 71 million, which was slightly less than the predictions. But it is still the fourth largest domestic box office opening weekend of this year. And overall worldwide so far, in three days, it took 161.7 million which okay. is the second largest three-day opening of the year. Now, will it hold over well into week two? That's what the big question is. With a 200 million budget and it not releasing in China and some of the Middle East for various reasons, including the sexuality aspect or the fact that I know that some of the countries took offence at its use of the Eternals as being representations of some of their gods, and right. that's caused some upset. But it needs to hold over well if it wants to be profitable. 200 million budget means that they probably need to take about 550 to 600 overall to break even. It's all down to the word of mouth. I'm hoping that that positive viewer word of mouth is going to carry it well. People going home from it and going, oh, just been to see Eternals. Oh, I've heard that's bad. No, no, no. Go watch it. Make your own mind up. So if you've been thinking about seeing it, but the reviews have put you off, don't put, don't let them put you off. Go and see it. It's done well. Second biggest worldwide opening of the year when it's on, not even opening in some some countries around the world. That's pretty good. That's good. So what else is happening in the box office? June has just scraped under 8 million in the US this weekend. It's a 49% drop on last weekend, which puts it at 84 million in the US and 247 million worldwide. We already know that they're considering June to be a huge success and it's got the sequel greenlit. So there's nothing to worry about at this point in time. The film is just going to keep generating revenue. And No Time to Die took another 6 million this weekend in the US, which totals 143 million in the US alone and worldwide runs at 667 million, creeping closer and closer to profit. The film is going to be released this coming week to home premium, and so the home premium rental will likely help boost the coffers and take it into a profit. In the UK, No Time to Die has taken a whopping $117 million, which is £86 million. That's phenomenal. Yeah. When you consider the size of the UK market compared to the US, the US has done 143, we've done 117. That is phenomenal to be taking that much of a share. But that's because Bond, even though it's made in America, it's made with American money a lot of the time, it's our film. It's our franchise. It's it's always considered a British film. So, yeah, so the box office is still doing pretty well. New releases are still hitting. We've We've got a bit of a quiet week coming up. And then we hit Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is what I've got my eye on next to see how well that performs because the 2016 film might have put a lot of people off the franchise. Hopefully it hasn't. Well, uh, to kind of intercede on that one, Andy, I think the people who didn't go to see the 2016 version just bypassed it entirely. uh, And with the fact this ties into the original Ghostbusters um, universe, gives it a bit of a heads up. And I think there's also a generation who've grown up now who didn't see the 2016 version we're going to be seeing Ghostbusters for the very, very first time uh, and, and not even realising it's a sequel to a degree. Yeah, well, we'll find out ourselves when that film arrives. But yeah, you're right. I'm looking forward to it as well. From the cinema point of view, working within the cinema at the moment, it's every weekend is really busy and it's great. We can feel the difference. We feel that cinema is alive again. Okay, so what news do we have 
from the world of cine entertainment. So The Rock has been doing press promo for Red Notice over this past week or so. And in at the time, the, the big key question that everyone's getting asked is anything to do with the tragic circumstances on the set of Rust, which led to Helena Hutchins, sadly, losing her life a couple of weeks ago. So he was asked, with regards to his take working within the industry, what does he see is happening? And in his words, he said, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can tell you, without an absence of clarity here, that any movie that we have moving forward with Seven Books Productions, any movie, any television show, or anything we do or produce, we won't use real guns at all. We're going to switch over to rubber guns. We're going to take care of it in post. We're not going to worry about the dollars. We're not going to worry about what it costs. He added to that that there's all the safety protocols that we've spoke about when we discussed it in detail and measures that are always in place and have always been taken. But when an accident so rare like this happens, the most prudent thing to do is to pause for a second and re-examine how you can move forward and make these rare occasions of accidents even rarer. And that's what the reaction within the industry looks like it's doing. That all taking a second to step back and go, well, do we need all this? Or is there other measures that we can put in place? And we spoke about this in that episode, that like every other industry, everyone is reactive. So that's why they're called accidents to a degree. I'm not being yeah. glib about it, but you, you you react after there's been a tragedy. And it's the same against in, in aviation, in transportation, in, in anything. Um, the terrible events at a gig in the US, yeah. we always react after there's been an incident it, it's just human nature so you i think there's a, there's been a, a sense of wanting to hang the film industry out to dry for this uh, and, I've, and i said this again in that episode there are hundreds and hundreds of shows and movies being shot every single day that that use guns and it, it, this one-off tragedy is a rarity yeah. there have been accidents before yes but it is a rarity when you you think about the amount of production that is going on yeah. and, and not just using guns, but using weapons uh, across the board. Yeah. The industry's learning, the industry's growing, and we're in an age where now they have the technology to do so much in post-production. Absolutely. Yeah. They can now look at like what measures can we do to limit these accidents taking place in the future. Um, at the same time as talking about that, he was asked about the Hobbs and Shaw film and the Fast and Furious franchise. And um, he's got plans for a Hobbs and Shaw film. As he said, when it comes to Hobbs and Shaw, which we loved and love making, there's an idea that I had that I called Universal Pictures chairwoman Donna Langley, called our writer Chris Morgan, our producer Hiram Garcia, and I said, I have this idea in this direction for Hobbs and Shaw too. And I pitched it, and it would be, without giving it away, it would be the antithesis of what Fast and Furious movies generally are, in that they continue to go on and on and on and on. In this case, I wanted to and still want to do the quintessential Hobbs movie that, again, without giving it away, that you watch a man walk off into the sunset. I said, we have an opportunity here to go against the grain and let's disrupt things a little bit and let's create a movie within the Fast and Furious world that's unexpected. Now, he's not giving anything away, but is he basically saying that he wants to kill off Hobbs? It kind of, that's, that was my reading of what you just said, to be honest. Yeah, it does sound like his walking into the sunset is going to be to completely retire Hobbs in no way, in a way that he can't get brought back, completely kill him off, which comes at about the same time that Vin Diesel has put a plea out on social media for The Rock to come back to the Fast series for the final two outings. <laughs> so um, I think this is going to be a bit of a disruptive plans. I, I doubt that The Rock will return to the Fast and Furious franchise itself. He'll stick with the Hobbs and Shaw because the, the on-set ego battle that he had with Vin Diesel. And Vin Diesel's message that he put out on social media to The Rock probably isn't going to help with the fact that he starts the whole play out with calling The Rock little brother. 
You don't call the rock little brother, you patronizing man. (laughs) (laughs) So what the future is for Hobbs, what the future is for the Fast and Furious franchise, who knows at this point in time. I'm excited for another Hobbs and Shaw film. I'm not excited for more Fast and Furious films. Okay, I've got some casting news for you. you So Cynthia Erivo, who was absolutely fantastic in uh, the Stephen King adaptation, Outsider. Uh, It's teaming up with Ariana Grande. And you mentioned this last week, that there was a Wicked movie in production uh, directed by John M. Chu. Well, they've joined the cast of that. Yes, uh, I think it's really solid casting for both parts. Ariana Grande is going to play Glinda, Cynthia Erivo playing Elphaba, who is the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah, marvellous casting decisions. At the same time as this casting decision has gone out, a petition has gained momentum for James Corden to be kept away from the project. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't believe in petitions. Maybe this time. This time. Well, a lot of people do with this one. His recent insertion into musicals, Cats, The Prom, Cinderella, Into the Woods, have all been dreadful. And some fans of the stage show are concerned that Hollywood's obsession over Corden would lead to his adding to this film to a detrimental effect and so want to show how derided he actually is. What roles would he possibly have been picked for? The Wizard of Oz, maybe? Or Dr. Dillamond? Please, not Dr. Dillamond. Don't put him as Dr. Dillamond. After just four days, the petition is tracking to be one of the top signed petitions (laughs) of any kind on Change.com. That's how much the audience for Wicked feel about this. (laughs) So other casting news is Gail Garcia-Bernal is to star in Marvel's Halloween special, which we heard well, some time ago, because we, we had a debate about this. Yeah. We figured out it wasn't going to be this year's Halloween special, but it looks like he's going to be starring in Werewolf by Night. Great casting. He's a great actor. I followed him. First film that I remember seeing him in was um, E2 Mom of Tambien. Yes. And he's one of those actors that have followed ever since. I th- yeah, he was marvellous in the Che Guevara two-part film. Yeah, he was. You know, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. And then uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who's about to be seen in... Uh, Adam McKay's new comedy, as well as Martin Scorsese's next film, is to star as the cult leader, Jim Jones. For those in England who probably don't know about him, he had uh, literally had his own cult. And by the 1970s, he openly rejected traditional Christianity and claimed that he was God. And the term, don't drink the Kool-Aid, comes from Jim Jones. Yeah, he was the the man who um, orchestrated the Jonestown mass suicide that That's claimed right. the lives over over 900 people back end of the 70s 78 i believe That's correct yeah so uh DiCaprio's such a, a charismatic actor I, you know i think he's he could do that villainous side as we saw in, in things like Django Unchained and and still bring charm to it at the same time. Well, that's the thing with when you were analysing a, a life, a true life story of someone who was a cult leader, you have to have someone who's charismatic in the lead yeah, role absolutely. to convey the fact that this is why people latched on to these people. Why do people get involved in cults? Because the cult leaders are charismatic. You can only get brainwashed by someone who you're actually drawn to. You can't get brainwashed by someone who you're opposed to. It's absolutely. impossible. Good point. Black Panther Wakanda Forever has temporarily shut down production due to an injury that Letitia Wright suffered back in August. Uh, We reported briefly on the injury that when she suffered it. But since that time, she's been relaxing and recuperating in London whilst filming around her has um, taken place. So all other scenes have been shot. And now they're at the stage that they need her back on set in order to continue production. However, she's not ready to 
head back to production. So they've closed up production for the moment and it's going to take a hiatus to reconfigure everything and they aim to get back on track for an early 2022 restart. At this point in time, they're not saying whether that's going to put a delay on the actual release date. It's possible that they'll get some of the post-production on the work that they've done, done in the meantime, so that it is just basically pickups that they have to do. But we'll know more. We'll probably know more within the coming weeks once they've worked out the new shooting schedule. So talking of Disney and Lucasfilm, Yes. They had pretty high hopes for that Patty Jenkins uh, movie, Rogue Squadron. Anyway, that's going to be delayed as well. Yeah, I mean, that this one is because Patty Jenkins has got a few other projects in the pipeline that led to scheduling conflicts. And so it's been dropped from the schedule, apparently, until she's ready to return to it. So it's not being cancelled. It's literally, a, okay, Patty, we still want you to do this, but in your own time. A speculation is that it's the third Wonder Woman film and also a Cleopatra biopic that she's been talking about that are the stumbling blocks getting in the way of this going into production. I'm interested to see what she can do with a Star Wars film. I hope that she gets around to doing it soon. And I hope it I hope it doesn't go the same way that Ryan Johnson's Star Wars trilogy has gone. That who knows? It's it's in the vaporware somewhere. Last we heard of it, it was like possibly still on, maybe, don't know. So the Foo Fighters have shot a secret horror comedy <laughs> called Studio 666. Nobody saw that come in. That wasn't on our bingo cards. It definitely wasn't. Uh, yeah, I only read about this one earlier today. It's uh, come out of the blue. They've completely and secretly done this. And it's, it's basically they're still trying to tour and put things together while um, all horrific things are happening around them. Looking forward <laughs> to seeing that. Sounds like a good bit of rock fun. Uh, this week, Disney, as part of their Disney Plus Day on the 12th of November, are going to add the IMAX-enhanced versions of 13 of the Marvel films onto the okay, service. Okay, that's interesting. Presenting them in the IMAX ratio of 1.9 to 1 to show the extra elements to the top and bottom of the screen that you missed out on a standard release. The films are Iron Man, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, Civil War, Doctor Strange. Oh, that's going to look great. Yeah. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, Infinity War, Endgame, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, and Shang-Chi. This is my excuse to revisit the MCU again, isn't it? This is yeah, my I think excuse I know what to start I'm doing from Friday. and work all the way through. <laughs> so one of my favourite films is getting a, a sequel. It's had a TV series, didn't star the original cast, and I'm quite intrigued uh, and a little bit suspicious, but one of my all-time favourites is Midnight Run. However, mm. it's Regina Hall who will be starring in a Midnight Run sequel, as opposed to Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro. At this stage, it's in the development draw, and speculation begins now. Midnight Run's a film that I need to go back and revisit, because I've not watched that since... It's a watched deep dive for us, Andy. Yeah, deep we, dive. Should, we should add it onto our deep dives. Gives me an ex excuse to go back to it. And Because um, remember, enjoying it, but then I've never watched it again. Oh, I, multiple times. Uh, the Hocus Pocus sequel has added three more to the cast. Hannah Waddingham from Ted Lasso, Tony Hale from Veep, and Sam Richardson, also from Veep, are going to join original stars Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy Najimy, and Doug Jones, as well as new cast member Whitney Peake, Lilia Buckingham, Belissa Escobedo, Juju Brenner, Freud Gutierrez, Taylor Henderson, and Nina Kitchen. The film is planned for a fall release on Disney+. Plus. I say fall. Why, why am I talking Americanisms? <laughs> the, film, the film is planned for an autumn release next year, and the film is currently shooting. Have you seen the, tra the new trailer for Moonfall? No, I haven't. Not yet. I, I've not done our trailer of the day yet, but uh, <laughs> tell me about it. Is it so as I, audacious as, we, as, as we'd expect it to be? I mean, we've mentioned Moonfall a few times, that the concept is preposterous enough. The moon's orbit's deteriorating and is set for, for an Earth collision course. And the first trailer looked like, oh, 
maybe it's not going for an all disaster porn that Emmerich goes for. No, this trailer makes it clear it's all disaster porn. It's very <laughs> clear that this is an, a Roland Emmerich film through and through. It's a leave the brain at the door, grab some popcorn, and ooh, disasters. And I'm excited for that very reason. <laughs> so talking of trailers, we've got the Book of Boba Fett trailer, which sends Star Wars' greatest bounty hunter to the criminal underworld. Definitely a character that's been worthy of having some more exploration rather than it just being, oh, look at that cool guy in armour. Yeah, and he's kind of got, a for me, a bit of a, a Godfather-esque uh, appeal to mm. him by looking at that. Yeah. Donald Glover posts a really creepy teaser for Atlanta season three. I've got to catch up with Atlanta only got as far as season two. There's been a new teaser for Stranger Things 4. And I'm also suspecting that we're on the verge of some trailer drops this Friday. Disney will probably drop a few trailers as part of their Disney Plus celebration day because they're, they're revealing a wealth of stuff, but they've not revealed everything that they're going to be showing us this Friday. And also, I'm fully suspecting Sony to drop a new Spider-Man trailer any minute now because they've just released a new poster. And usually yes, when a new, a new poster gets released, a trailer follows within days. So keep your eyes peeled. It's only a month away for the film itself. There's got to be a final trailer on the way. Taika Waititi is set to adapt Alejandro Jodorowsky's legendary 70s graphic novel, The Incal. Oh, I've read some of those in Heavy Metal back in the day. Yeah, that's where I don't know what it was about. Up. Couldn't tell you what it was about, but I did remember reading some of it. Waititi's going to adapt the script with Jermaine Clement and Peter Warren, and the graphic novel is considered one of the greatest sci-fi comic books ever made. It was formed from the ashes of his abandoned adaptation of Dune, which that fantastic documentary out there for people to check to see what vision he had for Dune. Get it checked out. But Jodorowsky and Mobius were working on Dune and took all their ideas, all their sketches, all their artwork and created their part satire space opera following a private investigator, John DeFool, caught up in a conspiracy involving mysterious artifact and multiple factions who are seeking the artifact's power. Waititi seemed perfect for such a, a satirical space opera. Looking forward to this one. One of Andy's favourite series of last year, uh, which I know blew me away, was the anthology series Small Axe. Anyway, Steve McQueen is making plans to head back to the big screen as he sets up a new film project called Blitz. No details as yet, but as Andy uh, can tell you, if anything's as good as Small Axe, then it'll be worth hanging in for. Yeah, he makes very interesting character dramas, and I'm, I'm on board. He's one of those directors that as soon as his name's attached to it, I'm on board just for him being attached because he always brings something interesting. Chris Pratt is going to voice Garfield in Alcon Entertainment's new animated take on the beloved Monday-hating Grouchy Cat. David Reynolds from Finding Nemo fame is writing. Mark Dindle, who gave us Chicken Little. Oh, oh. Oh, maybe oh, okay. oh, my motivation's just gone from that one. Uh, but the pair, interestingly, last worked together on Emperor's New Groove for Disney. So I'm kind of intrigued now. Okay, that wasn't too bad. I seem to remember enjoying that one. Yeah, it does appear that Pratt is currently the hot voice for animation suddenly, given his recent casting as Mario as well. So if you've got any more animated movies out there that you think Chris Pratt needs to voice, just uh, send your suggestions our way and we'll send them on to Hollywood. What else have you got, Andy? A lost cut of George A. Romero's cult vampire film, Martin, has apparently been found. The film follows a strange young man who believes himself to be nearly a century-old vampire, and he moves to rural Pennsylvania to find a way to control his urges. Michael Gornick, who worked with Romero on this film and Dawn of the Dead, shared a picture on social media this weekend with a picture of a film reel with black and white director's cut of Martin on 16mm. Running okay. to around 210 minutes, which is over twice the theatrical release, this was always apparently Romero's preferred vision, and Gornick is now handing it over to be restored and converted for distribution. 
the original theatrical release is getting a 4K reissue next year. So maybe this will be released to coincide with that. It's an interesting film. Uh, it's not an entirely successful film, but it certainly is an interesting uh, an interesting Romero film. So, so let's hope we get to see the full masterpiece that th- this film certainly hints at. Yep. The long in development series adapting Dan Simmons's four volume novel series Hyperion is set to be retooled as a movie. It was originally planned for a limited series on sci-fi with Universal producing, but it's now moved over to Warner Brothers instead and Bradley Cooper's production company remains attached. He was linked to the project way back in 2015. It's set on the eve of Armageddon The entire galaxy is at war. Seven pilgrims set forth on a journey to seek answers to the unsolved riddles of their lives, each one burdened with a terrible secret, but one of them may hold the fate of all humanity in his hands. I've never heard of that, Andy. It's one of those series I've never heard of. I've I've not I've heard of it, but I've never read it. I remember right. it getting really good reviews. Tom Spezzali, who gave us Watchmen, is going to pen the script. And news of the week for me, Paw yeah. Patrol the movie is getting a sequel. <laughs> The first film landed only a couple of months ago. Is anyone surprised, ago. firstly? The only thing that I was surprised about was how excited you were, but is anyone surprised <laughs> that, that Paw Patrol was getting a sequel? I think the biggest surprise was how well it scored critically. The critics absolutely loved the film. They said that it, it you know, they expected it to just be a cheap kids' film aimed to like the under fives, but it actually worked as a film itself. Okay. And it, it only cost $26 million to make. It took $135 million. And even though it had a Paramount Plus day and date release, that's pretty good scoring. So Nickelodeon has also announced a new television spin-off of the series, which will focus on one of the main pups. It looks like Paw Patrol. Well, th- there's the saying, there's life in this old dog yet. There's <laughs> definitely life in those young dogs there. A couple of minor, minor casting news roundups. Adding on to the Oppenheimer film, we've now got Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr., who are joining Killian Murphy in the film about the scientist who ran the Manhattan Project and developed the atomic bomb. Sophia Boutella has joined Snyder's Rebel Moon for Netflix, which will be his basic, I, I couldn't get to do Star Wars, so I'm making my own Star Wars film. <laughs> yeah, this is his take. And Gal Gadot is set to play the evil queen in the live-action Snow White for Disney. Rachel Zegler's set to play the lead, ro- lead role, and Mark Webb is directing. Filming on that begins pretty soon. And finally, some sad news. Accomplished actor of stage and screen, Actor Dean Stockwell has passed away at the age of 85. And according to family and friends, he died peacefully in his sleep. Now, the majority of you will probably know Dean Stockwell from Quantum Leap, in which he was the sidekick character Al. But cinema fans, especially for cinema fans who are big fans of Dune and David Lynch, will remember him from Dune and from Blue Velvet, where when he sings, is actually a piece of iconography now. But I remember him first from one of those movies that you, you pick up when you're a kid. It was a film called The Boy With Green Hair, which was a, a, an anti-war film. And uh, it's, it's one of those films that I've not seen as an adult, but as a kid stayed with me an awful long time. A fantastic actor, great character actor. Andy, what, what do you want to say about Dean Stockwell? I mean, I'm sure you've probably got a lot of the same memories that I have. Yeah, I mean, he's had a career that spanned from as a child actor in 1945 with Valley of Decision. But I first recognised him in Quantum Leap. But then I realised after that that a lot of the films that I'd seen before then, 
he popped up in it. And revisiting films, it was a pleasure to see his face pop up. Like you say, Blue Velvet, there's Married to the Mob, Buffalo Soldiers, Beverly Hills Cop. He pops, he's in Air Force One. Like you say, Dune, which I've got a lot of love for Lynch's version, despite it being a mess. He played Dr. Yui. The Manchurian Candidate remake, he was in there. But his TV work, he was everywhere in TV. You name the yeah. TV show from the 70s and 80s, and he was in at least one episode, be it the 18, whatever. He was yeah, he all over the place. Yeah, he popped up in Battlestar Galactica, didn't he? In the, in the remake series. Yeah, the Battlestar Galactica reboot. He had a very prominent role within that and was absolutely fantastic. Uh, he retired from acting back in 2015 after suffering a stroke, and he's passed away on the 7th of November this year at the age of 85. Um, it's a sad loss, but he leaves behind him a wealth, a wealth of memories of entertainment. Indeed. And that is the news. Still with us? Still enjoying the show? Well, this is the part of the show where we recommend that you subscribe to The Film File. Head over to your favourite podcast platform, find The Film File, hit the subscribe button, and remember to leave us a like and a positive review. You could leave us a negative one, but please, there's nothing to be negative about. We ain't those guys. If you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy making it, then tell your friends and they can tell their friends ad infinitum. If you want to know more about The Film File, you can do so by simply heading over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK. Head over to Instagram, Film File UK. Go over to YouTube and search for Film File and you'll find a YouTube channel there. Uh, you can email us thoughts, suggestions, reviews, films that you think that we need to see as a deep dive. We're open to anything. Literally, I'm open to anything. <laughs> so, be careful how you, how you um, be careful what you wish for included. there, Andy. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> That's, that email address is podcast at filmfile.uk. We've got our 100th show coming up pretty soon, and we want you to take part in that. If you want to send us what you think are your favourite films that we should be talking about, get in touch in time for our 100th show. Okay, so as you know, every week we do a deep dive, which is a look into a classic film, usually films that we like and love. This week we're doing something a little bit different, where we do a deep dive into Marvel's Sony production of Ghost Rider. Tell us about Ghost Rider. His face was on fire. Like... Fire to the bone. Nice bike. Let's ride. Ghost Rider. You all right? I feel like my skull's on fire, but I'm good. So the idea behind this is that you've heard us lavish praise over films that we love and recommend you to go and see. But we've all got those films that we've seen once and didn't quite like. But as I keep saying, you need to revisit films from time to time and see whether they still are bad or whether you just missed something. So what we've decided is that every now and then we're going to pick something that stands out as something that neither of us really liked, but we Go to revisit it to see if we can find something that we actually do like from within it, as well as like pointing out what doesn't work in it. If we can find something good, we will praise it. But this is an interesting experiment, so bear with us <laughs> as we, as we dig through. What I mean, I've even got notes on the sequel, so <laughs> I, I really went deep into this one. <laughs> you were a braver man than I. <laughs> so we're kicking off with the 2007 film Ghost Rider, brought to you by Columbia, starring Nicolas Cage as Johnny Blaze, brought to you, written and directed by Mark Stephen Johnson, known for helming 2003's Daredevil. So I watched this a couple of weeks back uh, with the kid. The kid really wanted to see it. He didn't know anything about Ghost Rider. He's not familiar with the character. 
So I, I, I gave it a go and I, I sat with him for the majority of it. For him as an eight-year-old, this was the best film ever. <laughs> I kid you not. He raved. He loved it. He thought it was funny. He thought it was a little bit scary. He thought it was, uh, uh, he had wonderful special effects and, and absolutely had, had a blast with it. I'd not seen it since its initial release back in, in 2007. Uh, and, and to be perfectly honest, I, I don't think it's improved that much. Unlike Mark Stephen Johnson's Daredevil, which I, I now have quite a lot of love for. There's, there's a lot of problems with it, don't get me wrong. But it's aged really well in, in most areas to do with story. And I still think that uh, uh, the look of Daredevil was absolutely spot on. And I thought Ben Affleck did a great job playing Matt Murdock. Still has faults, but I like it an awful lot. This, upon second viewing, still didn't land for me. What I did think was good, I thought the characterization of, uh, of Ghost Rider was, was spot on. I thought the look was, was absolutely, the, they captured the look. And I thought the effects had held up pretty well. The main problem I have with this is Nicolas Cage because he's not playing a character. He's playing Nicolas Cage, playing a character. Now, I know he was a big fan. I know he's a big comic book fan. Uh, and, and we know in an alternate universe he was Superman. But apparently he was a big fan of, of, of Ghost Rider and wanted to do it. It just doesn't land. The plot is all over the place. It goes for silly, campy humour instead of proper drama. You're not watching people. You're watching caricatures all the way through. But what I did like is I liked the look of Ghost Rider a lot. Cage was cast because he actively pursued this part. Um, he loves the character so much. He even has a tattoo of Ghost Rider, which he had to have covered up for the filming of the film. Um, initially, the, the studio was looking around names like Johnny Depp or Eric Banner to play the lead role. But Cage actively pursued it and as a result, increased the budget significantly. It was originally planned for a 65 million budget. It ended up coming in at 110 million because Cage, first of all, took a better paycheck than those two would have done. And secondly, he insisted that the special effects live up to the character. He was insistent that the Ghost Rider itself had to look look photo real. Now, I rewatched this only a couple of days ago. And you know what? I found myself kind of enjoying it. Right. It's it's okay. It's not a stinker that most people think it is. No, no, absolutely not a stinker. I'll, 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 I totally agree. The story's generic. The dialogue is dreadful at times. And Wes Bentley is absolutely dreadful as Blackheart. He offers absolutely little to no menace. But the film kind of knows how preposterous the whole idea was. And so it's got its tongue firmly stuck in its cheek for most of it. Even if someone clearly forgot to tell Peter Fonda, who adds no showmanship to the part of Mephistopheles, he just comes in and blandly says his lines and walks off. It's like, oh, you could have really chewed some scenery here, mate. What are you doing? You missed this opportunity. But what I found, I mean, you said that it's Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage. I felt that this was the most reined in that I've seen Nicolas Cage in quite a while. He wasn't his overly eccentric, wacky mannerisms throughout it. It... And maybe that comes because he's got a love of the character himself that he didn't want to make it ridiculous. He wanted it to be a bit more grounded. Yes, there's a couple of crazy cage moments, but they fit the moment of which is taking place, like when the transformation started to take place on him. And it's clear that his love for the character affected his approach to the material. I will say, I mean, I'll agree with you that the CGI stands up pretty well. Yeah, it, it, it captures Ghost Rider. And, it, you know, Ghost Rider came back for a sequel, which we'll talk about in a moment, but also came back for episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm. Uh, and where they really perfected the Ghost Rider look. But you know what? I cannot argue that with the, the look of the character was absolutely 
comic reel. It was it was absolutely spot on. And I'm I'm, I'm kind of pleased because Ghost Rider as a character has had many alter egos, and I like the fact they stuck around with with Johnny Blaze as a part uh, as opposed to some of the other variations on the character. Now, before uh, Mark Stephen Johnson was involved, David S. Goyer was involved, Jonathan Hensley. It looked like at one point that Blade director Stephen Norrington was going to shoot the film. Whatever happened to him? Uh, to be honest, but whatever happened to Mark Stephen Johnson either? I don't know if the, the Kiss of Death was this film, but both of uh, as, as far as careers have basically traded theirs in but it, it it's likable i i think i am, i enjoyed it more the first time round than the second time round but i do think it's kind of hung on and it and it's it's okay it does have a, a likability to it I, I i agree with you i think the casting of, of the villains other than the sort of the supporting villains were a bit bland and a lot more could have been done with them but they got the origin story right and they've got the the character right uh, definitely of Ghost Rider. Uh, Cage had his own skull scanned to form the CGI version of the Ghost Rider skull, which is why the effects work so well with the transformation because that skull matches his head shape perfectly. The, the budget, like I said, increased significantly as a result. Was it money well spent? I think the fact that you're talking about spe CGI special effects from 15 years ago that hold up today. That's a rarity. So, yes, they were well spent. It's Sam Elliott crops up in there playing the caretaker or basically playing the same character he plays in every film, to be honest. He could have just been as he just as easily been sat at a bar talking to a slacker about bowling and life in this film as he was talking to Nicolas Cage about the afterlife and the devil. Um, but this revisit wasn't as painful as I expected it to be. It's not a good film. And yes, it's a mess. And it spends far too long on the pre-rider setup. There's almost 50 minutes of film that pass before he actually becomes the rider. Yeah, that, that's it. that was clumsy for me. That's one of those things that uh, I was I was waiting around for Ghost Rider. Yes. Yeah. Hey, he's the title of the film. But you're right. The, the evil can evil aspect went on for far too long before we even even got a, a an inkling of, of who he's going to transform into. Yeah, and Rebel Wilson pops up at one point in Avengers. Yeah, that's surprising. I, 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 <laughs> you see, I've always got this this uh, issue with films that I know you know you're not always going to shoot in New York, and and a lot of a lot of times you you take that production elsewhere. But there's something about films that are shot in Australia for me when they're trying <laughs> to pass as the states that that don't ever land true. Don't know what yeah. it is but they just don't feel like the States. I think there's, you know, you can you can get away with, with Manchester for, for New York, but yeah. there's something about Australia. It, it doesn't sit with me on a, from a cinematography point of view. I don't know whether it's the lighting. I don't know whether it's, it's the kind of slightly hammy supporting actors trying to do US accents. But that's always an issue for me. I had the same issue with, with The Matrix, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah. The biggest problem that this film has is it suffers from origin taillitis. It's something that most other origin tales suffer from, that it just feels a bit generic and weak overall. And maybe they could get it right in a second film, like so many origin superhero stories have done. The second film has built on what was already placed and been so much better. So you mean something that wasn't just funny, it didn't go for cheap laughs, but went for horror instead? Yeah, like they, like they planned with Spirit of Vengeance, the sequel. I lasted 10 <laughs> minutes. The Spirit of Vengeance before I gave up. The kid enjoyed it. So, you know, it does have somewhat of a happy ending. I lasted 10 minutes of it. And the only <laughs> thing that they got right, again, was the Ghost Rider look. Uh, but even that, I didn't appreciate the Ghost Rider look this time because they went for like a, it's bubbling tar jacket and like burnt skull rather than the clean skull that we'd had in the first one. It, it, 
it looked sketchy and it doesn't quite stand up the test of time as much as that first one did. Um, Spirit of Vengeance came from Mark Neverdean and Brian Taylor, who had given the world Crank, Crank 2 and Gamer. And much like the Punisher duo of films, this second outing was pitched as tapping into the darker aspects and aiming to be less jokey than the first one. But what we got was a darkened, blackened Ghost Rider design. We got a film directed by two guys with serious ADD. Their fast cuts and constant movement and speed and slow changes and fast pans might have worked in Crank, a film which is kind of served well by the erratic handling, but here it just distracted and annoys me. You watched 10 minutes and gave up. I yeah. took three attempts on this film. <laughs> I had to stop it after 20 minutes because I was getting so frustrated with the camera work in it. And then I'd start it again the next day from where it left off. And then I'd get another 20 minutes. I was like, oh, no. It three times. It took me three days in total to work through this film. Within a few scenes, their style makes the film almost unwatchable. Idris Elba is on board for this one and fails to make any kind of lasting impression. To be honest, I completely forgotten that Idris Elba was in this until I rewatched it. That's how much of an impression he had on me when I first saw it at the cinema. The budget was cheaper. The effects were weaker. Cage ramped up his cage-like manner. And somewhere along the way, someone decided to make it trashy. Hello, Neville Dean and Taylor. <laughs> it diminished the whole affair and made for a dreadful take on the character. In addition, you can see the moments on screen that the dreadful trend at the time for 3D in everything were forced in. And there's things that snap out the screen and then there's like everything goes to black around them and the skull like judders in front of you. It's not, it's, if you watch the first Ghost Rider and like me, you go, you know what? It's not too bad. Let's give the second one a shot. A shot. Stop yourself right there. Slap yourself across the face a few times and back away. Watch the version of Ghost Rider on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. instead. Season four or five, I believe Yeah, it was. I think so. Yeah, it was towards the... Uh, uh... Not far off the end of the, the end of the run. But don't watch Neverdean and Taylor's absolute abhorrent mess of a film because I've suffered it. You don't need to. The character's now back with Marvel Studios. So fingers crossed we will get a proper introduction to the MCU at some point. Because you know a film's not going to go well when it's set in Eastern Europe because there's no reason <laughs> at all for Johnny Blaze and that character to be in Eastern Europe, and that's when that's when the warning signs went off within the first five minutes of it because it, it, it lacks gravitas. But it didn't have a bad cast. It had Kieran Hines, as you said, Idris yep. Elba and Christopher Lambert. All every single actor absolutely wasted in, in in something that I couldn't stand to be around. The stench I had to shower off. It was that bad. <laughs> And it, apparently, even so, for for Cage, because when asked would he come back for a third, he yep. declined. Not with and me. Considering how much he loves the character, yeah. for him to back away and say, that's it, I'm done, spoke volumes. So that's our deep dive this week into films that we didn't necessarily like. So that's the deep dive. Let's get on to our reviews. So as Andy said at the top end of the programme, there are two films that we can both review as we've both seen them. So shall we start with the film that I didn't see? The harder they fall. Proof is a book. Man, old devil, this is gonna be Buck's last day amongst the living. What exactly he do to you? Call it a professional rivalry. I know who you are. That love, outlaw, hunts down those who trespass against him with no mercy. Where is he? Where is who? Your boss. My boss. Clearly, you don't know me. I heard Rufus Buck was back. 
So ain't no road to ask a friend to travel. You think Destiny's coming to you? My guns go back. So The Harder They Fall is the first feature outing by James Samuel, a.k.a. The Bullets. And it's a Western that's infused with so much style and cool, whilst also playing as a strong entry into the genre. It uses characters from actual history, but plays completely fictional tales with them. And it, the tale tells of two cowboy gangs and the events that pit them against each other to the bloody and brutal end. Packed with a very strong cast that includes Jonathan Majors as Nat Love and Idris Elba as Rufus Buck, the two gang leaders with a personal history, as well as names such as Zazie Beetz, Regina King, Delroy Lindo, Lakeith Stanfield, RJ Siler, and more. There's a lot of characters to get to know over the runtime, but are all granted enough personality to make an impression right from the offset. Most of them are archetypes of the Old West. Indeed, drawing on actual historical figures makes this a certainty. And they are greatly aided by costume designs evocative of the best of the genre. Visually, the film is striking, with some tense gunfights, a train heist and ambushes all presented in a glorious manner. The film is a tribute to the Western genre, whilst also bringing it up to date with an essence of urban cool at the same time. Reminiscent somewhat of the Mario Van Peebles 90s black western posse, albeit handled much more deftly, Harder They Fall is an entertaining, engaging and joyful addition to a beloved genre. So next up is Finch, which dropped onto uh, Apple Plus this weekend, stars Tom Hanks, set in a post-apocalyptic future where uh, Tom Hanks is one of the few remaining survivors. But we see the entire film through Tom Hanks's eyes. There was a solar flare. Goodbye crops and food, goodbye everything. So I did. Frightened and so alone. And I found you. What shall we have? Get your elbows off the table. Get your elbows off the table. All right, you're next. You see, I'm developing something interesting. Giant leap of faith. Now, if you can speak, tell me something about you. That, that, that robots must protect dog. If we don't go before that storm hits, we'll die, all of us. As soon as you can walk, we're leaving. One, two, one, two, one. Now that's falling. One. Set 10 years after a solar flare has destroyed the ozone layer, increasing the temperature to 65 degrees Celsius and making the Earth a largely uninhabitable wasteland, scorched by radiation and subject to extreme weather events. One survivor, Finch, played by Tom Hanks, lives with his pet dog and a helper robot named Dewey. A robot engineer finishes building a humanoid robot companion to protect and care for his dog. However, he's unable to complete the programming for the robot due to an incoming storm that will last over 40 days and forces them to depart the safe isolation early and set off to head west to San Francisco. The robot, who he names Jeff, has a childlike mentality as a result, and along the road journey must start to learn responsibility. So this is one of those films where it's been in development for a long time. It started off on, on what's known as The Blacklist, which is one of those scripts where they gained an awful lot of attention, but sat on the shelf until Spielberg picked it up, 
And then other people looked at it, including, I believe, Robert Zemeckis. It ended up being directed by Miguel Sapochinik, who had been responsible for uh, Repo Men and then moved into television and probably most notably his work on Game of Thrones and the Battle of the Bastards episode for which he won an Emmy. We're kind of in familiar territory, and that's the thing that kept going through my mind all the way through. We have seen elements of this in many, many other science fiction films. It reminded me, for instance, a character, uh, one of the robot characters being called Dewey of Silent Running. Yeah. It reminded me to some extent of Omega Man and I Am Legend. It also reminded me of Hanks's own work in Castaway, but I absolutely adored it. The familiarity was welcoming. I loved yeah. this old style science fiction telling. The fact that in, in Tom Hanks's hands, a basically a single-hander movie, he can dominate the screen with his likability. If that's the future, and that's the way it's going. I want to be with Tom Hanks as Finch because he was such a likable character. And and I cared. I cared about the plight of him. I cared about the plight of Jeff the robot. And I cared about the plight of, of, of the dog, which is more than just an addition. It's a central, he's a central character. Uh, and, and the raison d'etre for this particular story. I, I absolutely adored this film. I thought it had heart. Uh, I thought it was very well done. It made me think. It made me think of old style 1970s science fiction movies. Uh, and it stayed with me, and there was even a tear in my eye at certain points within the film. The world setting of the post-apocalyptic world, where there's various threats from either weather or other humans who have settled around cities, is there, but it's not core to the story. Because the core story, the prime focus, is this growing friendship between a man and a robot. And it's a father-son bond that develops because the robot is so childlike. And it's impossible to not absolutely fall for both characters and feel for them and as you see the robots start to gain more and more curiosity and emotion anyone who's got kids of their own will recognize elements of the robots learning and understanding from it the robot makes him makes a mistake and like tries to cover up the mistake and is nervous and like shying away in the corner and as finch is basically trying to tell him off he's like hiding even further into the corner and it's just so perfectly done there are threats along the way but they're never important. It's more about how Jeff and Finch grow alongside each other. Hanks is on marvellous form. He's absolutely engaging throughout. But it doesn't take long for you to actually come to love Jeff, voiced by Caleb Landry-Jones, as the film progresses. This is another one of those examples that I've said many times before, that Apple TV continues to deliver quality output. This is no exception to that. It was initially planned for a release on cinemas last year by Universal, but COVID held it back. But Apple did a great job in snapping up the rights to this one because this is the type of film that I think is better suited I, to the streaming I was going to say exactly the same, Andy. I totally agree. I think it, it works better in your living room because it is, is it, a smaller screen makes it more intimate. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. Well recommended to check out. That's Finch. If you've not got Apple TV take out the 30-day free trial or just subscribe anyway and delve into it. Okay, so the big review, of course, is Eternals, the latest Marvel film to land. And as we said again at the top end of the programme, a film that's landed with, well, less than stellar reviews. But what did we think to it? For years, we have watched... And seen them accomplish wonders. 
but we have never interfered until now. Eternals, the end of one era is the beginning of another. Thor used to follow me around when he was a little kid. Now he's a famous Avenger and won't return my calls. <laughs> Chloe Zhao's take on Eternals, an ancient race of super beings who are assigned to defend Earth from the Deviants, which is a race of creatures and monsters, is possibly one of the most unique MCU films to date. There's CGI the action theatrics, of course, but they're not the prime focus. And instead, this film is a character journey. It's a journey through our history and the lore that the film explores. The Eternals have been on Earth since the dawn of mankind and over the centuries have guided man spiritually and technologically, helping humans grow to their full potential. However, they had strict rules of what they could and could not interfere with. Any man versus man wars must be allowed to play out. Any non-deviant external threats must be left alone. Some of the group disagreed with the rules and over time the Eternals grew distant to each other. Now, however, a new deviant threat has emerged and the group begins to gather once more. To start off with, just to say that when a film can be over two and a half hours in length and despite having been awake for 14 hours and have worked leading up to watching it, I still find myself so engrossed and immersed in it that the runtime felt much, much shorter. You know that that's a well-told film. It looked amazing. You can tell the use of actual real locations that Chloe Zhao insisted on. You can see how much it benefited the film because everything looks so fantastic and special as a result. Chloe Zhao championed for realism as much as she could when most MCU films are shot heavily with green screen and blue screen backgrounds. And the actual CGI design of these Celestials, the Celestials were one of those things that as much as I've been excited to get them brought to film, I was worried they would look ridiculous because in the comics, let's be honest, they look ridiculous. But they work and they are threat and they are a menace and it looks grand, it's epic and it's so completely different a tone to your typical MCU. And I think for me, Andy, um, and again, we hinted at this, one of the problems that, that Marvel faced with this is that if you step outside of the box, you're going to get criticized for it. If you stay yes. in the box, then you're going to get criticized for it. Now, it's it's not a wholly successful film. Is it the worst Marvel film? No, I'm still looking at you. Thor Dark World. Um, and it's not even, you know, my, my worst is, is still Iron Man 2. And it's a, it's a much better film than all of those. Is it entirely successful? Not always. It's a bit like a sumptuous recipe where you've got this incredible meal in front of you, uh, but some of the things just don't go. Some of the some of the ingredients kind of clash. And I think Zhao's style of, of, of and it is character driven uh, against what, fitting that into a Marvel film, sometimes feel at odds against each other. I think some of the ideas that she's had, the visual cues are, are absolutely brilliant and, and what you would expect. The idea of making the, the, a bunch of characters so incredibly diverse is a real treat. You're not trapped in a world of where you are looking at one note, not necessarily, well, let me rephrase, I was going to say one note actors, but but one note superheroes in, in the fact that they are all American and square George. She's really played 
with a diverse bunch of, of actors. She's introduced uh, the, the first sex scene into the Marvel Universe. She introduced an openly gay couple into the Marvel Universe, all to the best effect that adds another extra bit of weight of it. There is a, there's a little bit of, of to and fro between both styles, and sometimes it doesn't quite, for me, fit comfortably. But I was never bored. I was always intrigued. There were elements of where the plot goes, which I didn't expect. And of course, these aren't the most recognisable of, of comic book characters. Jack Kirby's initial run was set outside of the Marvel Universe. It was really only sort of the Neil Gaiman run that brought it in to into the Marvel Universe that we know. So there is no kind of hanging on to, you know, they have to be portrayed a certain way. They got the essence right, and it's got the essence of the Jack Kirby comic written across all of it. The visual style, the production design, all made me feel of Kirby. If anything with this film, it's the ambition on display that is a bit of a letdown. The scale of the story, it nods to how depictions of deities throughout the world and myths and legends were all inspired by the actions of the Eternals. And it feels that there's a lot more backstory that could have been told. It feels like there's three films that could have been made from this one film and done a really good job of showing the Eternals through various stages of history. But condensing it into one film leaves it jumping backwards and forwards a bit and leaves it a bit off balance. But the characters are the most important thing in this film. It is a character drama with a superhero background and the characters are so well played. The cast are great. I have nothing negative to say about any of them. I don't normally have any love for Kamel Nanjiani. I don't really rate him. But he fitted perfectly well as Kingo, who's now become a Bollywood legend in the modern day. His, st his style of humour worked great in it. And the humour is an important thing to touch on. Because one criticism that people throw at Marvel films is that every character is a wisecracking, witty, snappy, retort person. But in this, they weren't. There was key characters who had the humour. The rest of them were quite serious and stoic. And I feel that it gave some balance quite beautifully to it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is an ambitious film it, and it does fall down in places. I think Chloe Zhao's entry into the superhero world is exciting that she's managed to bring in a, a, a beautiful, visual, stunning film. She's brought in the human dimensions that uh, I'm not saying other films are lacking. I, I wouldn't even go mm. to that. And in some areas, it's a great leap forward. Um, it's just sometimes an odd mix. I totally agree with you about the running time. It feels over long and in places. In, in some ways, it reminded me of uh, of Old Guard. Do you remember the thing that was on Netflix about immortal soldiers? The uh, some of the elements of that felt quite familiar. But it was it was it's that ambition that you think they've tried to do something different, and and that alone is well worth the price of admission. So if you've read negative reviews, or firstly, I'd, I'd wonder why they were negative without a, a proper analysis. But if you are, are bored by the uh, Marvel formula, then this plays with it, in some areas sticks to it, but in other areas, it breaks free of it and feels like a very, very different Marvel film. And we said the same about Shang-Chi. Yeah. It, 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 it attempted to do something different, fell back into the mold towards the end, and that was the poorest element for me. But this is is quite brave. Not always successful, in my opinion, but well worth seeing and checking out for yourself. And, and I'd be interested to know what our listeners think. So feel free to get in touch with us, podcast.filmfile.uk, to let us know your thoughts on The Eternals. So, Andy, what's coming out this week? So, cinemas, it's a bit of a low week this week. Uh, Mothering Sunday releases, which sets pla takes place on Mother's Day in 1924. Mr. and Mrs. Evan give their housekeeper the day off. 
as the couple are set to go on their neighbor's house to celebrate his engagement. But the truth is, Jane and the neighbour, Paul, have been having an affair for many years. And Cry Macho, Clint Eastwood's latest, sees a one-time rodeo star and washed-up horse breeder in 1978 take a job from an ex-boss to bring the young man's son home and away from his alcoholic mum. Over on streaming, Now TV and Sky. This is going to be my film of the week next week, you realise this. Dog Tanyon and the Three Musker Hounds. <laughs> I'm slightly I, too old to remember it. I, I do know what it is, but it was it was out of my uh, out of my prison by that time. I missed this release when it got released in the cinemas a few months ago, so I'm so happy it's coming to Sky this week. It's well and truly one of my childhood favourites, and I'm hoping that the film's going to live up to it. Um, over on Netflix, Red Notice lands this Friday. Well worth checking out, only because Ryan Reynolds is in there and The Rock, so that's for me. Over on Amazon, Ad Astra lands, which we both have some love for. Um, I think we both referred to it as Apocalypse Now in Space. When yeah, I, I had a really good time with it. I thought it was uh, an interesting, again, slightly flawed film, but the the, the good uh, amounts to much more than the sort of the weaker areas in it. Over on Disney Plus, it's Disney Plus Day this weekend. So Shang-Chi and Jungle Cruise go free on there. And also their new um, Home Alone film, Home Sweet Home Alone, lands on there. And there's probably going to be a few surprises drop on there as well at the same time. And over on BritBox, a documentary that I didn't get round to seeing when it got its limited release. They Shall Not Grow Old, Peter Jackson's World War One documentary oh, using well restored seeing, footage. Andy. Well worth seeing. Lands on BritBox this week. Well worth checking out. And that is about it for this week's film file. But as ever, before we go, we tell you about our neat thing, which is to say something that we've enjoyed, watched, played, a you name it, as long as we've had a good time with it and it's pretty neat, we'll tell you about it. This week, I think we are going to be in an interesting position because, Andy, tell me what your neat thing is. So, season three of What We Do In The Shadows. In The Shadows, which is my neat thing as well. (laughs) Landed on BBC iPlayer this week. I am halfway through the season and laughing all the way through it. I am loving this cast of characters. We've spoke about it, what we do in the shadows before as neat things on season two. I think we spoke about it on season one we as did. well. And it, there's a reason why it's a recurring one. And it's probably a good reason why we both want to submit it for this week is it is one of the freshest and funniest shows on TV. They took a film. They said, we'll make a TV version inspired by that film. And they've actually made it not only sit nicely alongside the film, and crossover with elements of the film, with characters crossing over. But they made it its own thing at the same time. And it, I think it's actually better than the film now. I think because we've, we've spent longer with the characters now, you know, into, into three series. And they're very different characters. They're not even sort of the archetypes of the characters from the movie. They've got their own personality, these, these three vampires. Well, four, if you uh, include Colin Robinson. <laughs> it is just a joy. It's, it's, we sit and watch it together, my partner and myself, and we watch it and, and, and absolutely, absolutely love it. It's, it's beautifully done. It seems a lot more swearier <laughs> this season than it did previously, and that helps for me add to the humour. It just, it just adds another level to it. I don't know. It's always been quite sweary. I, I crafted after the first season a little um, soundboard app of um, Laszlo's quotes, and a lot of them are swearing. <laughs> oh, are they? Matt Berry is fantastic as Laszlo. He has been since day one. Kevin Novak as Nandor is on fine form this season, and N- Natasha Demotru as Nadja is great as always. But the one who's really coming into his own this series is Harvey Goulin's Guillermo. Yes. Who is 
absolutely fantastic. I mean, Mark Prosh as Colin Robinson is still there for some great comic relief every now and then as the energy vampire. I love the idea of an energy vampire. Yeah, just yeah, I think I've met several. <laughs> but Guillermo is really starting to grow more and more as a character. And even like uh, Kristen Schaal as the guide this season has been a nice welcome addition for just a bit of quirky oddness at the side. Everything about this show just keeps evolving and keeps growing. And having them in charge of the Vampire Council after the events of last year just offers so much comic relief. It's brilliant. If you've not seen What We Do in the Shadows, A, watch the film. B, get watching all three seasons of this on a BBC iPlayer. First two seasons are also available on Disney+. Plus. So if you've got Disney+, Plus, get them watched. But season three all landed on BBC iPlayer this past week. And all I can say is when the master episode happens in the third season, Andy, you're just going to have to call me. <laughs> That's it for this week. We'll be back with another episode of The Film File next week. Andy, any plans for this week? Um, well, I finished watching what we do in the shadows and then see what lands on Disney Plus this weekend and spend all my life jacked into the internet again, as always. I've got no major plans. I have started recording a few new things for the vid YouTube channel, so I'm probably going to be editing a few things in the background to go out over the coming weeks. So I'll see you next week, Andy. Stay safe, stay well. But one of the best ways to drain people's energy nowadays is via the internet. Yeah.